Hey everyone, in case you didn't know, Hub 50 Please is a very proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, or community of progressive podcasts challenging right-wing and corporate media dominance in French and English from coast to coast. We're also working with the Left Journal Passage as a founding partner to build a media ecosystem challenging centrist and far-right narratives and creating space for left progressive voices in Canadian discourse. Personally, there's a few shows I really enjoy, including Rob Rousseau's 49th Parallel and the Indigenous storytelling series Feel Rouge. Harbinger depends on the support of listeners like you. You can subscribe for subscriber-specific content if you head over to harbingermedianetwork.com. Andre Goulet has generously been editing these specific episodes on Canadian activism. This one is taking us to Winnipeg as well as Hamilton, Ontario. So my first guest is James Wilt from Winnipeg Police Cause Harm, and then Sarah Jamma, longtime friend and comrade from Defund at the Hamilton Police. I really hope people enjoy this episode and enjoy the Canadian coverage. It's been an absolute honor to talk to people who are organizing in their own communities. Um, there's been an exchange of kind of experiences and tactics and tools, as well as a lot of learning for me. And I hope that these narratives proliferate and people can see that people, even if things seem bleak, people are in community together, struggling together, doing mutual aid work and other types of work, and fighting for a collective future that we all long for. Hope everybody enjoys the show. Today I have James with me from Winnipeg Police Cause Harm, and we're just going to learn about the group and why this struggle is relevant not only to Winnipeg, but throughout Canada right now. So James, how are you today? And can you tell us a bit about Winnipeg Police Cause Harm? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm doing well. Thanks for asking and thanks for having me on. Um, So Winnipeg Police Cause Harm is a uh, police uh, police abolitionist organization that was um, founded in the fall of last year. And it uh, followed in the wake of um, uh, several uh, pretty high-profile police killings um, of Indigenous and Black people in Winnipeg. Uh, and so some of us got together and decided to um, sort of follow in the footsteps of some previous organizing that had been done in the city by groups such as uh, Cop Watch. Um, and we wanted to focus more on just awareness building and consciousness building um, because Winnipeg's like a pretty um, strange city in the sense that uh, like the province itself was governed by the NDP for a very long time. So there's kind of the social democratic um, context to it but at the same time it's uh, you know heavily heavily policed Um, we have the highest percentage of any um, uh, major city in Canada's uh, budget going towards policing and of course this disproportionately uh, impacts indigenous and black people uh, in Winnipeg and so um, since the fall of last year we've been focusing on trying to get our messages out via social media via postering campaigns we've done a number of presentations to uh, the police board and to city council and its committees not so much to um, try to convince them or talk them out of funding police because obviously we know what their position is but more to try to politicize the process and show um, the you know that the city but also the, the public that there is a, a growing opposition to the way that you know decisions are being made around these kind of things uh, in the city um, and so yeah we've been doing a whole bunch of uh, different uh, things you know sometimes we'll have a really um, quick focused um, campaign around um, you know we, we recently had like a family who um, are, are in the middle of a legal inquest um, for a loved one who was killed by Winnipeg police in 2017 and so we helped kind of get the word out around that and do some fundraising around that um, but also we try to do some more like long-term um, uh, you know politicization of things like budget processes and these, these kind of things and really trying to show that you know the, the decisions that are being made around the prioritization of policing is not only harmful in the sense that it is directly violent um, against especially black and indigenous communities through police killings and assaults and intimidations and surveillance and all the rest but it also takes away an enormous amount of resources from life-sustaining alternatives alternatives that we know actually keep people safe. And so in criticizing, you know, the police and calling for the defunding and abolition of the Winnipeg police, we're also uh, pushing for, you know, real um, alternatives such as, you know, housing, harm reduction, food security, public transit, good employment, um, you know, all these sorts of things. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of difficult to g- gauge how we're doing. Like we've definitely had some some pushback from members of council and also the police chief um, following a whole summer of, um, you know, protests 
and actions that were um, organized by another group called Justice for Black Lives Winnipeg. Uh, and he's indicated in the media that, you know, officer morale is low uh, and all those sorts of things. But at the same time, there's a budget making process happening uh, as we speak. And the, and the city is once again um, giving raises uh, to the police. Uh, and so, you know, it's it's not an easy fight. Um, it's a fight that's going on in many other places in the country and, and world. And these are struggles that we're very inspired by and uh, see connections with, um, such as, you know, defund uh, in, in Hamilton and in Toronto and, uh, you know, all over the place. And so, uh, so that's kind of like what we're about, what we're focused on. Um, and, uh, yeah, uh, we're, we were really fortunate and, and we do want to prioritize the work that's being done by justice for black lives Winnipeg, but because it was due to, um, you know, a, a rally that they held in, in June of this year, which drew out, I, the estimation was something around 10,000 uh, people to the Manitoba legislature, which, you know, for Winnipeg is just an enormous uh, number of people. And so in the wake of that, we we uh, had a lot of people who wanted to get more involved in this kind of abolitionist work. Uh, and so it was through that that uh, we, we have a lot of new members who have come in and contributed their own um, skills and interests in that and that sort of thing. And so... Um, we recently launched a website and, and a blog where we're trying to, you know, get these counter narratives out uh, into the world. Um, there's currently a uh, we're participating in the 16 days um, of activism against sexual and gender based violence um, across Canada. And so there's been a series of really great blog posts that have gone up um, just kind of analyzing how we think about, um, you know, safety uh, and how we think about, you know, responding to um, sexual and gender based violence uh, in ways that are not carceral. Uh, and so. So if anyone's interested in those kind of uh, conversations, uh, definitely check out uh, the blog. And we're, we are always on social media, um, probably to a fault. But uh, there's just there's so much to talk about when it comes to policing in Winnipeg. So we try to make the most of it. From what I understood from the website, which I, I'm going to put it in the show notes, but um, the police budget is going to be raised to 26.8%. That's absurd. That's like the highest one I think I've heard so far or close to the highest one I've heard so far. So are people doing deputations? Like what's going on with that raise? It, that's It's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. I can actually break it down a bit because since the preliminary budget came out a couple of days ago, I've just been like obsessing over it because like a lot of it is like quite hard to parse, which I don't think is unintentional. Uh, so yeah, in 2021, um, the Winnipeg Police's total spending will increase to $313 million, uh, which will be 26.5% of total tax-supported expenditures. Uh, and so CTV did a uh, an analysis uh, a couple of months ago looking at policing of 15 major cities across Canada. And obviously every uh, city in Canada is, is over-policed because, you know, police shouldn't exist. But uh, it is pretty stark to see the differences between uh, Winnipeg and, and other cities. Uh, so last year, 31% of the average annual municipal property tax bill was spent on policing. And that's compared to 19% on community services, rec and parks. Uh, and if you look at the budget as a whole, um, police uh, receive and spend about three times as much as what's spent on community services. So, you know, libraries, arenas, pools, these sorts of things. Uh, and so it's like a pretty, you know, obvious example of, of why we need to divest from police and reinvest in alternative uh, community solutions. But it is a really difficult fight. Um, the the, these the, the reason or one of the main reasons that uh, that the Winnipeg Police's uh, funding is so high is because of many, many years of really strong collective bargaining agreements, which have been won by the Winnipeg Police Association, which is the police union. Uh, and so in this year alone, uh, an additional $6.9 million will be spent on police salaries and benefits. And the city recently tried to uh, basically crack down on police pension uh, costs because the way that things are forecast, it's just like it's going to get, I mean, it's already ridiculously expensive. It's only going to get worse in the coming years. And so they were successful in um, basically rebalancing the pension formula. But at the same time, um, the police association obviously got very upset that the, that the city was trying to challenge the pension arrangement. So they went to an arbitrator and the arbitrator ruled against, uh, against the city. And so we're still in a position where there's just an enormous, enormous amount of money, both now and in the future, that's going to be dedicated to policing because of the role of the police union. And I think we're seeing a lot of conversation happening in the U.S. about the role of police unions, you know, what they are, how they relate to other labor organizations, you know, is, is police, uh, are, are police workers, etc. Um, but yeah, we're really seeing this 
play out in a strong, uh, strong way here. So those are some of the main factors. But, you know, we, we take these kind of positions to council, to committees, to this kind of thing. And, you know, they're pleading that they're bankrupt or, you know, not using those words, but, you know, effectively bankrupt in every other area. That's why they have to cut, you know, transit service. That's why they have to, um, you know, flatline on community services and these sorts of things. But at the same time, they just, you know, acquiesce and say, well, the police budget just has to go up year after year. And the one thing I should really point out is that, uh, you know, even by the police's own metrics, uh, they are failing at what they do. So uh, last year was the highest homicide rate in the city's history. And Winnipeg is a city that is known for um, a high rate of violent crime, uh, depending on how we define that. And this year, it's looking to overtake that. Um, and so, you know, the, the Winnipeg police are receiving the highest budget in its history. And at the same time, the homicide rate is, uh, you know, the highest uh, in its history as well. And so police will say, well, you know, this is why we need even more resources in order to crack down. But we're saying, you know, any evidence-based policymaker will look at that and say, well, we have to try something else. Uh, so our uh, our calls on that front are not being received by council, um, which is not surprising. But I think, you know, the more that we repeat this uh, to, to the public, um, I think the more that there is reception to it. Um, because, you know, you can even make a, an argument just based on you know, finances are based on money, um, which is inherently somewhat of a conservative position. But the fact that we're saying, you know, we should cut the hell out of, uh, out of this one organization and reallocate it and increase funding to these things that actually keep people safe, I think is a pretty compelling argument for people. Yeah. And I, I have a question that you don't have to answer if you don't want to, but um, do you think that cops are working class? It just like I always think about it's it's like on topic but not yeah. on topic. But like it, it's always something no, I no, want to talk about totally. because I think the one of the defensive mechanisms I have I see from other people who care about left politics and building a larger left is the kind of gut reaction of cops are working class or it's like a job out of um, whatever situation they were in or something. So I I know you're super smart. I've been following you for a few years on Twitter. I think so. I would love to hear your take on that, actually. Yeah, for sure. I mean, they police are workers in the sense that they are employee that they're employees of an employer. So you know they they receive their checks from the city of Winnipeg uh, and uh, and the city of Winnipeg uh, you know has a contract in relation to them through their uh, their police association. But at the same time, I think it's important to delineate like what their actual role is in society. And I you know some people will say like well oh if you're gonna say that anything negative uh, that someone does means that they're not a worker. Um, um, like, you know, an oil and gas worker or something. I don't think that holds true um, because what we know about police is that they exist to uphold, um, you know, existing class relations, which is to say private property um, and uh, settler colonialism and capital accumulation. And so they exist to to suppress uh, any and all opposition um, to capitalist accumulation, whether that be um, labor unions going on strike. Um, and we saw this with the crackdown in Regina at the uh, at the refinery strike, which happened just a, a year ago, I think even uh, today um, it was it was on ongoing. Uh, and so we saw that happen there. We've obviously seen, um, you know, the OPP at 1492 Landback Lane um, crack down or the RCMP raids at Wet'suwet'en. Um, and I think part of the issue that we've seen with this is that these struggles haven't been um, brought together necessarily. Emily Riddle um, wrote an amazing piece for Briarpatch calling for labor unions to pay closer attention to, to the struggle um, of Indigenous peoples and how they relate um, to the struggles of labor unions uh, because of the fact that they uh, are both extremely vulnerable to police violence. And so I think when we think about it in that way, it becomes quite clear that the role of the police is it's a somewhat nebulous one in the fact that they are paid to do this by an employer, uh, but at the same time, they exist to suppress the rest of the working class and, um, you know, everyone else, the, the subaltern, indigenous peoples, you know, we can define it any number of ways, but they, they exist to to suppress dissent. Um, the other thing that I've heard, which I think is quite a compelling argument, is that part of the impetus um, for the, the ruling class, the capitalist class, to um, pay such high salaries and benefits uh, and pensions to, to police is basically to create a a stratified, um, you know, existence for police officers. Um, so we see this in sort of like the blue light, the blue lives matter um, imaginary, in which 
um, or like the thin blue line in which they see themselves as holding back uh, what they would call as anarchy or chaos. And so everything that they respond to is representative of that. And they're, they're the one things that are the, the one thing that are holding that back. And so I think when it comes to thinking about actual compensation, there's absolutely a benefit, even though it costs more in the short term, the long term benefits for the ruling class are that uh, that they can have this sort of stratified labor force, which is distinct uh, from the uh, from the rest of the working class, uh, and will exist um, to suppress the working class, even if there are instances where they uh, think that there may be opportunities for solidarity. In Winnipeg, actually, it's quite interesting when the 1919 general strike happened, which at the time was one of the you know the biggest labor actions in in North America, and still is in terms of its history. Um, the cops uh, at that time. Uh, walked off, or they they uh, they showed solidarity uh, with the strikers, and they, they basically refused uh, to to police them, which resulted in a whole bunch of other things that I won't go into at the moment. But I think a lot of the legacy of the way that the police have been funded in the city comes from that, and comes from the ruling class seeing what happens when uh, you know police make that kind of decision and are doing everything in their power to ensure that that never happens again, uh, and that has worked like very very effectively. You know, police in Winnipeg are um, very hostile. I mean, police in every city are very hostile, um, but they uh, they've they've definitely got a mentality that it's like them against everyone else, and especially you know indigenous peoples and black peoples. So um, yeah. So to answer your question, like I think there's been a lot of like good writings on this, some good debates, and I think one of the most precise um, you know opportunities that we have to leverage this is more so in the states, but is to get you know um, police out of uh, unions, and so this usually happens at the federation level. Um, but we do see, you know, sort of crossovers here. So even though there's the Winnipeg Police Association, it's an in- independent um, organization in the sense that it's not a part of a, a larger uh, union structure. Um, uh, the way that the municipal unions in Winnipeg, um, such as uh, QP500 or ATU1505, um, I think talk about or at least see themselves as operating is is in like solidarity with or in conjunction with. So there's been meetings that have been held by those unions in which they'll all meet with the city together because they're saying, oh, we're city workers. We all represent the same um, interests. And I think it's important for those unions to, you know, to, to look at that. And even though they're not part of the same union, to say that we see our our class interests as fundamentally uh, distinct and we need to, um, you know, like stop uh, working with them in any capacity at all. Um, And the last thing I'll say on this is this isn't police specific, but um, MGU, which is the Manitoba Government Employees Union, um, which, you know, represents all provincial employees, uh, still has correctional officers in its unions. And when I say still, correctional officers are one of the most powerful um, contingents of, of that union. And so these are the, the correctional officers uh, in in jails um, and also in, in youth, det- youth detention facilities. And so I think in a situation like that, even though it's not police specific, I think we can um, you know organize within these sorts of unions to, to try to curta- curtail the power of correctional officers or to try to remove them entirely from uh, the union itself because they do have very, very... Uh, like bad implications in terms of how the union orients itself, how they think of justice, how they think of transitions to a better society and all these sorts of things. So um, hard question. I hope that that was somewhat helpful in thinking through some of this stuff, but it's, yeah, it's a very like live issue. And I think there's a lot of practical implications for the question. Yeah. And I appreciate you answering it on the spot because it's, it is a hard question. When people ask me that question, I struggle with it a lot, but um, I wanted to ask you too a bit about something you sent me that's on the page about um, an officer called Jeffrey Norman. Cause in Ontario, we we like know the officer names, like people who are activists. We know the officers that have done harm, specifically like the most harm. They've all done harm, but the most harm. And so um, I was reading and I was just kind of appalled at like how this happened. But yeah, if you could talk a bit about that and that kind of video and campaign uh, you folks have going on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so... When we launched our website, we also launched this video that um, looks at uh, this specific office, officer, uh, Patrol Sergeant Jeffrey Norman. Um, and so the reason we did this was not to try to focus on, on a bad apple, so to speak, um, but it was to really try to um, draw out these names because what the Winnipeg Police and the Winnipeg Police Association have very consciously done is try to conceal identities as much as they can. Um, so if you look at the you know the latest compensation disclosures for the city, um, this, this happened a number of years 
years ago, but basically none of the police show up by name um, next to the uh, compensation that they receive. And so even the police chief doesn't have a name. He has a badge number. And so the fact that, you know, even if you're looking at, okay, let's see how much this cop who I had this run in with, uh, you know, based on the fact that I know his name makes, you can't do that. And so there's there's this very like sustained level of uh, secrecy, um, you know, the, the blue wall or the, the wall of silence and all these sorts of things. And so we wanted to try to um, really just call out this one officer and just to point to him, not as saying that this is a uniquely um, terrible police officer, although he is terrible. It's more to say that this is emblematic of the fact that this is a guy who has been on the police force for many, many years, has had many allegations of serious abuses um, that he's uh, conducted, uh, and and he's only received promotions and protection ever since. And so Norman specifically uh, actually came up in the LAPD in the 1990s, which, uh, as anyone uh, will know, was a very... uh, just awful police departments, um, Rodney King and all these sorts of things. Uh, and so he came to Winnipeg and over the past decade or so, he has had just countless lawsuits uh, filed against him, some individual and some collective um, for abuses, for fabricating or concealing evidence, um, for all these sorts of things. Uh, and, you know, this has all been reported extensively in the media. So it's not like we're, you know, we're coming up with this ourselves. We basically just looked at what uh, media outlets have done and uh, just reported on that. But most recently, uh, in April of last year, uh, a cyclist uh, was biking through um, just a residential neighborhood in, in Winnipeg uh, and asked uh, a police officer who turned out to be Jeffrey Norman to turn down his high beams uh, because it was in a residential na- neighborhood uh, late at night. And uh, in response, uh, Norman got out of the vehicle, and of course, this is all you know alleged, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But um, he pepper sprayed uh, the cyclist and then detained him for an hour uh, after suffering uh, this this pepper spray. Uh, and uh, I think it was finally it wasn't until the paramedics showed up an hour later that he was uh, finally released. Uh, and so more recently. Um, this was only uh, a handful of months ago, uh, but this is while Norman was off duty. Was he? Uh, he followed a group of indigenous peoples who he suspected of stealing. Uh, I believe it was liquor from a liquor store, and he followed them to to where they were going. Uh, and again, this is while he was off duty. And then he um, beat one of the suspects unconscious with his. Uh, baton, and the Winnipeg police didn't disclose uh, this to the the oversight body, which is the Independent Investigations Unit of Manitoba, um, for quite some time. Uh, and so I think that they are like quite aware of the fact that this is an officer who has a very very long string of uh, like very serious incidents, um, and uh, they have yeah again done nothing but uh, promote him. And as far as we know, there's been no public reprimand uh, at all. Uh, so yeah, we we you know came up with this hashtag of fire Jeffrey Norman, uh, in addition to many of other, our other hashtags, uh, such as abolish the WPS and all these sorts of things. Um, but yeah, just to really try to give, um, these officers a name and a face and to say that we're watching, um, because, uh, the fact that this, this just keeps happening again and again is, is pretty clear evidence that, uh, you know, police in the city are, are not concerned about their reputations and we, we want them to be. The last thing I want to ask you about, and then actually I might ask you a transit question. Sure. Um, um, but but uh, I, you talked a bit about um, W like Winnipeg police are causing harm, uh, participating in the gender-based violence 16 days, right? That's right. Can you expand on that? Yeah, for sure. And so uh, there's 16, 16 days of activism um, on uh, sexual and gender-based violence, uh, which is, you know, across uh, North America. And this is something that was identified um, when we did it, sort of an internal reading group uh, a number of months ago, because uh, we, you know, we just want to better educate ourselves about some of the key abolitionist texts and arguments that have driven this movement forward. Uh, because, you know, obviously, uh, black feminists especially have been, um, you know, leading this for, for many, many years. And so we, we read uh, quite a famous text by uh, Insight and Critical Resistance. Um, and it was, you know, just addressing um, all these different dimensions of, of how, um, at that time, and, and probably still to this day, because they, they did a retrospective uh, many years later, was that uh, the the campaigns against sexual and gender-based violence and the campaigns for police abolitionists were basically not um, not talking to each other or were not like receiving each other's messaging as, as they should. And so they, they argued that there was a lot being over um, overlooked uh, on, on both sides. So in the case of 
um, you know, campaigns against sexual and gender-based violence. Um, there are oftentimes calls for, um, you know, carceral, carceral responses uh, and, you know, all the consequences uh, that come from that, not only, you know, for the, uh, the perpetrators in terms of, um, you know, the actual experience of incarceration, but also what we know about uh, the fact that police don't take sexual and gender-based violence seriously at all, um, that the actual rates of, um, you know, successful prosecution are very low, all these sorts of things. And then at the same time, that document um, argued that at the time, um, you know, abolitionist movements weren't doing or weren't paying sufficient attention to sexual and gender-based violence, um, and that they hadn't been thinking through enough about how to adequately adequately respond to concerns um, about, you know, what, what happens uh, to, you know, my rapist or, you know, this person who abused me or all these sorts of things. And so um, some members of the group read that, um, came together and decided to really try to focus more on that um, in our work. And this isn't um, a, a subcommittee that I've been involved in, but there's been an probably a half dozen people who have been putting in an enormous amount of time uh, into trying to, you know, outline some of what may be, um, you know, abolitionist responses to these things. Uh, and so there's been a series of blog posts, which I'd encourage people to check out if you're interested uh, in response to the 16 days um, of sexual or of activism around sexual and gender-based violence. Um, you know, just trying to think through um, some of this thing. And we've got upcoming Q&As with people um, who have who have done a lot of um, thinking about this. And of course, it's not uh, an easy issue. Uh, issue to to address or to deal with but we think it's uh very important because when we were uh tabling or when we were talking to people uh pre-covid um this was this is a conversation that comes up constantly and understandably so and so we think as an organization we need to have um answers and we need to have um contents which people can read and share and, and these sorts of things and so hopefully um some of the work that is done through these 16 days but also um beyond that in terms of how we continue to operate as a group um will We'll just continue to, to help push that conversation forward in Winnipeg. Uh, and once again, not this is not a new conversation by any means. This has been, um, you know, uh, had by decades by um, black feminists across North America. Uh, and we're really indebted to the work that, that they've done. Um, and so it's really just trying to, um, you know, localize some of these conversations and, and think about what it means for Winnipeg specifically. So abolitionist responses include instead of reform, abolition and reallocating funding and one thing that's jarring is how much a police force costs versus how much transit costs. And I know you are somebody who cares a lot about public transit. So the things I would want you to explain to an audience and like answer for me as well is like, what does free transit look like? Why should it be free? And why why is that a community response and an abolitionist response? Among other responses, obviously. For sure. Yeah, we've seen some really cool uh, mobilization that have been connecting these uh, struggles. Um, you know, obviously there there were the the huge um, turnstile um, jumping campaigns in, in New York City, uh, and the uh, and the politicization to, to put it uh, lightly in, in Chile um, against uh, the austerity regimes there. Um, but also, you know, in, in Edmonton, there's an organization called Free Transit Edmonton, which has been really trying to push for this conversation of police abolitionist and fair free transit to come together. And so the argument I think for free transit um, is you know, uh, number one, just practical. It means that um, transit systems no longer rely on what are effectively user fees um, to to operate, uh, and so by removing transit fares uh, and replacing them with, you know, long term sustained government funding, uh, it means that people uh, do not or are not denied access um, to transit uh, based on income, um, and it also means that the altercations that often can happen between um, riders who may not or cannot um, pay. Uh, and the drivers themselves don't happen. So this is a source of a lot of um, assaults that happen um, to drivers. And of course, this isn't the only um, you know impetus. We've seen many um, awful situations lately over uh, mask requirements. Um, but you know, by removing fares, this, this means one less thing that, that the driver themselves has to worry about in terms of altercations happening when they have to deny someone um, access to transportation. Um, so in turn, this means that people can um, more easily access the things that they need to survive and to 
thrive. You know, so often what we think of as crime, you know, in quotation marks, uh, is a result of people not having access to resources they need. So whether it be, you know, housing or food or healthcare or education or income supports or all these sorts of things, um, you know, transit is is the link between people physically being able to get to the office um, or to get to, you know, certain institutions or places that they need to be. And so by removing fares, that also increases people's ability to, you know, to get the things that they need. Um, but, you know, I think most obviously by removing fares, it removes fare enforcement. So I mentioned the issue of drivers and the precarious position that they put themselves in. Uh, but, you know, in Toronto, uh, there's uh, a lot of money that goes into fare inspection. Uh, and this fare inspection is disproportionately applied to uh, Black and Indigenous peoples. Um, there's been a ton of stats that have come out uh, in Edmonton and Toronto and New York that show that the way that fare enforcement is conducted, and this isn't surprising to anyone who's you know ever thought about the police critically before, but uh, but it, you know is is applied uh, very disproportionately to to Black and Indigenous peoples. Um, so by removing fare enforcement, um, it means that we can actually reallocate that money, just as we can reallocate the money from um, policing uh, to better transit, and in turn that can actually increase the quality of the transit service itself. Uh, and so all that kind of comes together, I think, uh, as a pretty compelling case for why we need to uh, remove fares and, you know, really fight for better transit service uh, as a whole. You know, it's not a one-stop solution. And, you know, I, I've talked elsewhere about the need to invest in transit in, in a number of different ways. But I think, you know, in the context of, of what's happening in, uh, you know, across North America, around the world, about, you know, just growing awareness of police violence, um, and, uh, you know, the need to really fight back uh, in terms of policy and systems. I think free fare transit's a really um, obvious uh, way to do this and to improve um, so many other elements, uh, whether it be, you know, climate change and air pollution uh, or accessibility, um, you know, for people with disabilities and all these sorts of things. So it's like, it's really just a win, 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 you know, et cetera, et cetera, um, which I think can really be fought for successfully by, uh, by activists. Yeah, thank you. I think so too. And where can people find you folks online? Yeah, so we're, we're very online uh, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And for all of those, you can just look up WPG uh, Police Harm. Uh, so Winnipeg Police Harm. I, I think it's just reduced because of word count or letter count. Um, we also have the website that we definitely encourage people to check out. Um, this one is just Winnipeg Police Cause Harm. Org, and so that's what houses a lot of the blog content. And I should use the opportunity to say that um, we're calling out for uh, people to pitch to us for, for blog content. Um, we have a, a small amount of money that we can pay um, Black, Indigenous, and people of color writers. Um, and so if you're interested in writing about um, abolition work, uh, you know, the, the, more, the more local, the better, like especially if it's in the context of Canada. Um, and uh, yeah, so if people are interested in that, that's a great opportunity um, to kind of connect our struggles there. Uh, and uh, yeah, just check us out on, on social media. And, and we have some some cool things coming down the, down the pipe. So um, yeah, so it's exciting. Thank you so much. Hi, everyone. Uh, thanks for listening to the first half of this episode with James Wilt of Winnipeg Police Cause Harm. Now I'm sitting here with Sarah Jemma, who's a longtime comrade. Um, we don't get to connect as much as I'd like to, but I'm super excited to hear about uh, the, an action that, that just happened in Hamilton that she helped organize and what they're up to right now with an encampment network launching. Hi, Sarah. How are you today? And can you tell our audience a bit about you and a bit about what's going on in Hamilton, Ontario? Uh, my name's Sarah. I'm an organizer in Hamilton, and we just wrapped up a 15-day-long encampment in front of uh, Hamilton City Hall, calling uh, for the funding of police here locally and also for investments into housing. Hamilton has the largest density of people with disabilities in the province. And so what we've seen over the course of the pandemic specifically has been uh, an increased criminalization of poor and disabled people in our city. Uh, encampments have been popping up, much like in Toronto and other parts of Canada, um, where people who can't afford to can't afford rent are ending up in encampments, or who aren't being provided other services are ending up in encampments and then being policed out of encampments, being forced to move from 
park to park to park because the city has decided that it is no longer legal for people to reside in public spaces. We spent two weeks in front of City Hall with uh, providing food, medic support, tents, and supplies to people who were houseless, um, who needed a spot to sort of be supported. Um, and we refused to leave until we heard on a couple of fronts. We wanted a multi-government response on the housing crisis here in Hamilton. Um, according to the UN Repertoire on Housing, the eviction rates in Hamilton have gone up, I think around 97% in the last six years. So it's pretty terrible and there's not enough places for people to live, but our city kept on lying, saying that there were hotel spots. And um, that wasn't true. Hotels were being offered to couples um, and it was only for like a couple days. So people would end up back in the streets. Uh, the city also lied and said that there were shelter spots, but the women's shelters are completely at capacity and they have been for years. And the men's mm -hmm. shelters are like run like prisons, essentially. That's what people are saying. They're in undignified uh, conditions. And so we were yeah. out in front of city hall, like basically asking the police to, or the city to invest in housing and out of policing. And what happened was instead of talking to us, the mayor would send police to sort of try to liaise between us and the city. So it turned into this really fucked up situation where we were dealing with uh, the police telling us to leave and the city telling us to leave, which is a basically a symbol of what's been going on across the city to begin with. Yeah, and um, one of the shelters is kind of by um, that nice fancy banquet hall where all those events take place in Hamilton whenever there's like a big speaker. Do you know what I'm talking about? When Angela Davis was there. Oh, the first Ontario Center. I think so, yeah. Angela Davis has spoken there. So have like some members of parliament. And I think Justin Trudeau was the one who spoke there. I went to the Stephen Harper event for a bit in like 2015. But the, the shelter there, so I'm saying this from my experience of being in Hamilton from 2009 to 2017-ish um, on and off. Um, there's always been a lineup outside of it because there's not enough beds. Why would there be beds now during a pandemic? There's literally always a lineup and not only a lineup, there's people who do makeshift sleeping situations outside of that. Like everybody knows who like ever has to go to an event. You have to pass these people living in such dispossessed, horrible conditions outside because there's never been enough space in Hamilton. Right. And if you miss your, your cue, like you're, you're kicked out. If you like get into some sort of argument with staff, you can get kicked out. You can get banned. Like I've met people who've been banned from the shelter, then where do they go? And yeah. then the mayor's response to this was he put out some stupid statement saying that these people are unmanageable, that they're too disruptive. And by these people, he means disabled people, right? People living with, um, you know, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, like a whole bunch of disabilities that are not, and that have no other family supports ending up in parks. And he's saying that these people are unmanageable. and cannot also exist in public and so where are they supposed to go yeah exactly and um you folks did some actions can you tell us about a few of the actions but can you also like share insights into like how to organize a 14-day encampment that makes a mark like this or 15 days rather and like because i you folks had so much programming involved which i think is very important when you do community-based organizing or work um and taking care of people in that way and taking care of each other but also um yeah, just uh, also the meeting you were offered that was a private <laughs> meeting. Yeah, that was messy. We So eventually the mayor responded to our demands. We, we asked for a couple of things. We wanted the Hamilton police to be defunded um, like immediately by 50%. We also said that the surplus that the Hamilton police were asking for should be denied. Uh, they're asking for a $4 million increase on top of their budget, which is $171 million, which is more than any other public service. And they're the only ones allowed to keep their surplus. So we were telling council to vote this down. Um, we were also asking for a multi-government response to the housing crisis, which in my defense, I don't think that was too complicated. It just takes like the mayor actually going to call a meeting um, and try to talk to other elected officials about a plan, an action plan that's immediate, which he wouldn't do. Um, his response was to send us a written letter, even though we were outside for X amount of days, uh, saying that he would take a meeting with us if it was in private, only two of us, not the whole group, and no phones and no technology. And the meeting that he ended up offering us was after hours. So the building locked at 4.30. They offered us a meeting for 5 p.m. Um, so I was like, there's no way I'm going upstairs uh, when the building's locked. No one else can get in without my phone to yeah. talk about God knows what with you. It's it's sketchy, it's not safe. And the, poli like, the police were using City Hall, 
even though they already have their own police HQ, they were using City Hall as a home base. So at any given time, there were like 20 officers on the inside just looking at you through the window because it's see-through. So I was like, there's no way I'm going to go in there. We want a public meeting outside, which wouldn't have been complicated because last year, the Fridays for Future kids literally marched all the way from Gore Park up to City Hall, up the stairs, banged on his door, and then he came and spoke to them. Um, so we didn't do any of that. We just delivered a harmless coffin to his door in the middle of the night. No, I agree with you. And then um, what did what did programming look like? And also, like, this was the defund uh, Hamilton Police Services group was, to, from my understanding, uh, a coalition. Can you speak about what other groups were involved? Yeah, so we had a lot of cool programming, yoga every single morning from Good Body Feel, which is a collective of, like, racialized uh, young women in Hamilton who do body movement uh, stuff. So we did that. We had a lot of poetry, spoken word, just to, things to keep people um, energized because it was freezing cold outside. Um, and yeah, anybody who came could offer programming. So at one point we had like self-defense uh, lessons, which was really cool. Uh, the coalition, it's a youth led organization uh, sort of group. We have like uh, members of the HWDSB Kids Need Help group. So they got cops out of schools. Uh, we have like, I'm in there, a couple other members from HCCI, a couple members from like other university groups, but it's mainly just a group of people in Hamilton who've worked together on different issues coming together to be like, hey, okay, let's defund the police. Yeah, and the big win was in, I would say the summer, I think July, right? That no more police in schools in Hamilton, which was a big win that other, like I'm from Peel, Peel is looking at that now or has it. Um, it's transitioning weirdly, but whatever. But <laughs> but I think there's still some cops at these schools. But um, yeah, like the SRO program, Hamilton, I think was one of the first in this area of Ontario to get them out of school. So it, you guys have had some wins. Yeah, that was interesting. We blocked the road for six hours on Main Street, which is, if you know anything about Hamilton, Main Street yeah. is a pretty big deal. So yeah, we ended up getting the vote passed. I definitely think the police are already looking into ways to get police into schools. I think so too. That's what they're doing here. Yeah, so I'm not surprised. The work definitely doesn't end here. And then like, what was it like during that 14 days even for you? It's been cold. Um, not only cold, it's just, um, did the cops show aggression because the Hamilton police services are known for being very friendly and okay with white supremacists, but being quite aggressive towards people who are not white supremacists. Yep. They were really aggressive, um, on the first night, especially, uh, there were like 20 cops that came out, uh, and formed a line and yeah, it was very intense. I think they were scared, though, because we were live streaming everything. But they did arrest somebody that first night um, mm. and let him go shortly after. They have been aggressive, but I think because of all the public support, uh, they stood down a lot as well. Uh, the, the hardest part about all this was when they came and tore down tents in the middle of the rain. They didn't need to do that. And we kept explaining that there were literal houses people in these tents. Like, they made a pregnant woman just get up and like take all her stuff in the rain um and it's like it's not like we were able to track where people were going because it happened so fast mm-hmm. uh yeah it was just it was completely inhumane of a process and they came in with garbage trucks right yeah it, it really goes to show like our mayor constantly says that he doesn't have control over policing even though he's like chair of the police board and he's working in tandem with police to displace people constantly. They brought like city bylaw trucks and just started throwing everything out. Even though a bylaw infraction, the bylaw infraction doesn't say that your stuff like needs to be thrown out. They could have given it to us to keep, right? And hand it out, but they didn't actually care. Um, and they were taking the whole thing very lightly. Um, the hardest part was so we had someone lose his foot due to frostbite um, because of being chronically unhoused. Like, this is shit that people are dealing with every day. People will die this winter because our municipality and our province don't take the housing crisis seriously enough. I know what's happening in Toronto, too. Like, masses, yeah. mass amounts of people are being evicted with nowhere to go and mm-hmm. will die because there's no, there's literally nowhere else to go. Yeah, and people have been dying in um, park bathrooms. It's devastating. It's, it's grotesque. And the mass evictions are only 
further facilitated because of COVID. It just reveals kind of the necropolitics that already existed and who we let live and who we let die. And um, you folks had two city councillors come to the encampment. Um, can you tell me a bit about what that was like and what happened? Yeah, Councillor Nan was the first one to come out and she basically said she was going to move a motion in January um, calling for uh, the funding of police. So we'll see how that goes. Uh, I was happy with that. Uh, the second counselor who came was uh, Maureen Wilson. She didn't want to speak publicly, but she kind of like walked around the perimeter and she said something strange, like she doesn't see it as her job to um, challenge the mayor's personality. Uh, so anyway, wasn't super That's useful. Strange. So I'm not sure about that one. And then we had John Paul Danko come down who doesn't support us, thinks there should be more police. I don't know why he came downstairs because he also didn't get on the mic or say anything. Um, and then Terry Whitehead, who came down, spoke to us, but really because he was on vacation for a week. So he didn't know why we were outside. So he was like, what's going on? And then he was like, yeah, no, I definitely think the police like are underfunded and should be more funded more. But I believe your housing point and I think you're conflating these issues. And then he, I tried to be like, you should read Police and Black Lives because he was like, I don't understand why you people are afraid of police and I'll never New understand people. that experience. Yeah. And then I tried to tell him to read Policing Black Lives. And he said, I'm not reading that. It's written by a Marxist. Uh, so then we basically told him to F off. That didn't go well. Uh, Overall, the interactions with politicians during this has been strange. Uh, but what um, takes the cake is the mayor just not coming downstairs to talk to us and writing us a letter to be delivered to us by the police instead of coming downstairs because he was watching our live streams at different points so he knows what we were doing for the 14 days yeah just to ask another question related to government is you wanted a multi-government multi-level government response were there other levels of government in hamilton that did respond or like officials from different i guess so municipal doesn't sound like it was great uh we had like provincially uh Monique Taylor responded. I think Andrea didn't respond directly because she was in surgery, but the Black Caucus put out a response too, which I appreciated. And then Rima, who's a critic on houselessness, but like it's all statements, right? Statements don't mean anything to me. I wasn't asking for a statement. I was asking for some sort of an action plan that centers the fact that we are in a housing crisis right now. All these people keep saying housing is a human right. It's like, okay, what's the plan? Mm -hmm. At least like, I know the NDP has a, really robust like housing platform point but still I don't think they have an actual plan um Matthew Green came by twice and also put out a statement which I thought was a good statement okay so something's there but maybe the mechanics of it aren't there I think that at the very least we didn't get our demands met but we restarted the the fund conversation which is what I think we wanted to do as well it was kind of dying down provincially and so we wanted to connect it to issues going on right now because people often see these issues around housing and policing as separate. Yeah, and, and it's about a reallocation as well, right, of funds. And then, like, now you folks have launched an encampment network. Can you talk a bit about what that means? But also how a lot of these cities kind of gave lip service after the murder of George Floyd. But people are going to die this winter. Like you said, that's really sticking with me right now. Mm -hmm. uh, so the beginning of the pandemic, uh, my friends and I launched this thing called Caremongering. It was based off of a similar thing in Toronto, um, but ours was a bit different in that we centered people with disabilities. Uh, we ended up through it feeding like thousands of Hamiltonians. We were running it for the past eight months of the pandemic. Um, it's just a food delivery system where we make sure that people can request food and get it at their doorstep. Um, but the needs are so high and it was it got to the point where we also were delivering into encampments and we started to see, we were there for encampment teardowns about four different teardowns um, supporting people. And so, yeah, that kind of inspired the action, but also like this idea of the encampment support network. We're huge fans of what's being done in Toronto. And I think throughout this action and through seeing the other teardowns as well, we've been able to build relationships with people who are unhoused on the ground. Um, who are also interested in the encampment support network and so they're going to be working with us um meeting with us weekly to support and setting this up so that there is surveillance at each of the encampment counter surveillance so that we can make sure that if police come in people are still being kept safe 
mm-hmm. um, and supported because mm-hmm. it can get really violent really quickly. Yeah, it gets violent everywhere that I've seen. Um, well, people lose their stuff, right? If their whole lives are in their tent, their tent gets torn down, but also physically violent. Also, people get arrested or put in hospitals and they don't want to be there. And so the Encampment Network, I'm guessing, is going to keep working. You had like a, like, can you describe for the audience the kind of eviction notices that were put up? That's like something I think is a good, I think it's a good tactic for organizing. Yeah, we were constantly trying to be disruptive. City Hall had this weird arbitrary rule that was put in place after the white supremacists kept protesting that you can't really put stuff on City Hall. Um, So in a trolling type of way, we decided we were going to evict them instead of them evicting us because we all got multiple trespassing orders throughout the course of this um, event. I think that the encampment support network, the idea of it is to make sure that um, people are still being supported. We have over 20 encampments right now. Mm-hmm. And so just like dividing it up and making sure that there are like ways to build mutual aid in each of these sort of hubs in Hamilton, while also making sure that houseless people are able to like advocate for themselves while the teardowns are happening and keep each other safe. Um, because yeah, it can get really, when you have police there and bylaw there, it can be pretty intimidating with the garbage trucks. And they basically are like, leave now. Um, we'll get you in a hotel for a couple nights, but you can't take your tent or your stuff or like, we're going to just throw everything out. Yeah, exactly. And where can people find you folks online to support you if they're listening and they want to support you folks? You can probably find us at defundhps.com or at defundhps on Twitter and Instagram. Are there is there anything you want to add or, like, leave people with if they're, if they're thinking about doing this in their own communities or, like, why people should care about um, unhoused people even if they're housed? Like, that's the kind of the thing I always have to tell people. Like, it doesn't matter if you have shelter, you should give a shit. Right. I think that... That if our government is saying housing is a human right, um, then everybody should be housed. I think we are seeing a pattern throughout this pandemic, but even before, that disabled people don't matter in this country. That if you're disabled or you have, like, you've grown into disability or if you have an addiction, that you don't matter, that you can be disposed of, that you, it's okay if you die outside because you're unmanageable or you're seen as too disruptive to exist. Um, And I think. It's often people with disabilities, racialized people that are over-policed. And so when we are talking about defunding the police, it can't just be in theory. You have to be looking at your local communities and seeing, okay, who is more likely to be policed right now? And it's people who are houseless, who are being evicted from public space en masse in a way that I've never seen before. Like, this isn't normal and this isn't okay, especially on stolen land. Who are, who are these people to say, okay, you can't set up a tent outside even though you have nowhere to go? It's, it doesn't make any sense. And so I think when we're talking about defunding police, it, it's about time we're connecting that to other issues in terms of what should be supported. Hey, these episodes take a small team. Solo episodes are hosted by me, Ashwalina Khan. American political episodes are co-hosted by Dawson Kimian. Canadian political episodes are co-hosted by Ryan Deshpande. Music and art for Habibti Please is done by Post America and Johnny Zapras. Editing is done by Johnny Zapras. Production assistance by Raymond Hanano and Dawson Kimian and sometimes some other Habibis on our team. Consider giving to us on Patreon to help fuel our team with chai and other fun things at Patreon forward slash Habibti Please. And you can find us on Twitter at Habibti Please with a B. This takes a bit of money and your support helps us carry on the show and continue producing some unique content. So it's much appreciated. Yalla, let's grab some tea and shisha.